On today's episode, we invoke the early life of a rocket pioneer, and we see how a little rich boy grew into a burgeoning rocket scientist and a part-time occultist. There's a rare isotope of hydrogen that gets us into heavy water. Loves a chemical reaction in the brain So let me be your Bunsen burner Let me be your naked flame burn, baby, burn. Let me be your Bunsen Welcome to Light Your Bunsen Burner, the science history podcast that lights up your mind. I'm Mariela Rosas, and joining me as always is the Dark Lord of Space, Jonah Baker. So thank you everyone for joining us today. Today's episode is explosive. It has all the components of a horror science fiction novel. And for um, that regard, I want to issue a bit of a disclaimer this week and for next week as well. Contents of this episode and definitely part two might not be appropriate for younger or more sensitive audience members. We are going to be talking about the occult. We uh, about sex parties and some group and a, a very gruesome death later on. I like this. <laughs> you said sex parties and cult. You're like right up my alley. And rockets. So and rockets. Yes, blow it up. Kaboom! <laughs> I like it. Um, yeah. So we'll try to keep it kind of lighthearted. Just be aware that there there's going to be that stuff that we're going to talk about and explosions and a lot. Yeah, deadly explosions. <laughs> yeah. But overall, we are going to be covering the tragic story of a man who took a very sordid path towards his goals and ended up losing everything, including his life. Who is this man? All right, Jonah. So I want to start by saying that for generations, humanity has looked to the stars and imagined what the different worlds up there could hold. When the Wright brothers took flight in 1903, we came a step closer to reaching the heavens. And that fantasy took hold at that time. Once we reached Uranus, there was a party in the heavens. Yes, there was. (laughs) But there was a few steps before then. Okay. And one of the things, or one of the the, uh, places that kind of built this fantasy were science fiction magazines and novels that that theorized how space travel could function. For example, Jules Verne, like very famous early science fiction writer, he envisioned that space travel would be by the means of a massive gun-like apparatus that would shoot humans to the moon. Um, Obviously not, you know, just like... Like a giant slingshot. (laughs) And we'll put someone in there and pull back as far as we can and see if they can make it to the moon. It's more like a cannon with like a... uh, Not even a ship, just like a container inside. Wear a helmet. Yeah, for reals. Um, Then you have H.G. Wells and his Martian invaders in War of the Worlds. They traveled to Earth via a very similar mechanism for Mars. I love War of the Worlds. Huge fan. It's a great novel. Not as great. Tom, wait, Tom Cruise was in a movie, right? That movie was terrible. (laughs) Disclaimer, don't watch it. Don't watch it. But during the early 20th century, the concept of space travel was sheer fantasy. And the notion of using rockets to propel 
uh, a spacecraft out of Earth's gravity was laughable. So no one believed this could be done. This was like impossible. This was science fiction. There was no way. And anyone who thought that they could do it, they were crazy. Um, even an astronomy textbook of the era ridiculed the very idea by stating, quote, only those who are unfamiliar with the physical factors involved believe that such adventures will ever pass beyond the realm of fantasy. So it seemed that humanity's curiosity for space would not be sated. However, one boy looked to the stars and thought, I want to take us there, and then looked at a rocket and said, this is how I'll, I will do it. And that boy was a Marvel Whiteside Parsons. He's marvelous, I tell you, marvelous. <laughs> so Marvel W. Parsons was born on October 2nd in 1914 in Los Angeles. His awkward name was actually inherited from his father, and his parents were Ruth and Marvel Parsons, and they had moved to L.A. the previous year, so in 1913. Uh, they had come from Springfield, Massachusetts the previous year, um, and since Marvel's father had actually been known as Ted instead of Mar Marvel his entire life, the, the Parsons decided they had the really great idea of calling their new baby boy Jack, um, which was probably better than Marvel. Although Marvel's a cool name. I think Marvel would be more accepted now. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, there's a ton of weird names now. Or not weird, just different non-traditional names. Yeah. Um, like Jack. Like Jack. Jack. Now you meet a Jack and it's like, why are you called Jack? What? what? Where, where's the Q or the O? Is it Jack? <laughs> Jacques. Jacques. It's like, were you named after your grandfather? Is is Jack short for something? Like Jacobin? Jack-o'-lantern. Jack-o'-lantern. Yeah, and, and this is what we're, we're going to call him from now on. So we're going to call him Jack. Um, All right, bye-bye, Whiteside. <laughs> Hello, um, Jack. Um, so Ruth uh, had previously been pregnant before they moved to California. But the child had been born, had been stillborn. So, Aww. yeah, that. And that was really devastating for her. And that's one of the reasons why they moved to California, just because where they were at had a lot of memories of that. So they packed up and they moved to California. And then to kind of celebrate, they decided to try for another kid. And that's when Jack was born. So when Jack was born, she was really happy, really ecstatic. And she doted on her little baby boy. But her joy would be very short-lived. So while Ruth was pregnant... And in the weeks following Jack's birth, Ted had been seeing a prostitute. So here comes this kid, this guy with his wife from Massachusetts. And they're, you know, they come into downtown Los Angeles and he's suddenly, you know, taken aback by all like the, the freedom and liberties that this, you know, big city had. So he's obviously going to be, he's spending a lot more time downtown and like meeting a bunch of new people and drinking and all this stuff while his wife is pregnant, and then he meets a prostitute. Ooh la la. Mm. Oh, Ted, that's not very marvelous of you. <laughs> you got a lady at home. Yeah, and she's having a baby. How dare you? So when Ruth actually discovered this infidelity, she forced Ted out of the house, and then he really desperately tried to get her back to no avail because she was just not having any of his shit. Um, so he would write her letters filled with assertions that his infidelity meant nothing. So basically saying like, 
oh, I didn't love her. She meant nothing to me. It was just, you know, like a physical thing. And in one uh, letter he wrote, quote, Ruth, I may be very brutal, but I think you are very foolish to have the thoughts you have of the other woman. You are crazy to think I love her or anyone else but you. Haven't you learned that it is anything except love that lets a man stay with a prostitute? Just like basically trying to get her thinking like that she's dumb for believing that he loved a prostitute. It's like, that's not the point, dude. The point of a prostitute is not the love or the sex. It's the fact that she leaves when you're done. This is a quote from a movie or a song I heard somewhere. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I'm, I'm speaking in Ruth's perspective. It's like, okay, yeah, you, you went and slept with another woman, but, you know, like, we're married. You know, I, I'm pregnant. Like, you know, how could you do that to me? It's fucked up. Yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah, so she wasn't moved by his arguments at all. And by March 15th of 1915, so this is 1915, she had initiated divorce proceedings and actually forbade Ted from seeing little Jack. So then when he realized that he wasn't going to get her back or like really, you know, cajole her into doing what he wanted, he just asked like, hey, we'll get a divorce, but at least just don't say that I was an adulterer. Because that in this time, in this time period, in this society, that's really bad. The scarlet letter. Kind of, yeah. I mean, but he did it and she was pissed. So he was publicly exposed as an adulterer and he was forced to move back to Massachusetts. And then he never had the chance to meet his son. Oh, wow. Um, I don't agree with what he did, but he should be able to see his son. I think she was just so heartbroken and disappointed that it just, it you know, there was no way that she was going to let him back in her, in her life. Could totally understand that. Yeah. But I kind of see the point where, you know, he should have had a little more access to him and it affects Jack, you know, kind of a lot later on in his life. But I, I think it was also a product of that time period where, you know, she revealed that he was an adulterer. There was, he wasn't going to have a very good life there anymore. Hmm. And then, you know, eventually he, he did try to write and like get to know the kid more, but you know, she never really wrote back, or at least we don't have any evidence that she wrote back. And then eventually he remarried, had another kid and just stopped trying. Um, Very tragic. So from then on, uh, Jack, uh, well, Ruth decided to call Jack uh, John Whiteside Parsons on all official documentation. So she completely cut out that Marvel so following the split, Ruth's very wealthy as fuck parents moved to Pasadena to be with their daughter and grandson. They purchased a home in an area dubbed Millionaire's Mile. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I wish I lived there. I know, right? Uh, the road was lined with mansions and it actually attracted a lot of the wealthiest, most sophisticated L.A. residents. So this was, you know, at the time, like the early 1900s. For there to be millionaires, like to be a millionaire during that time period, it's like being a billionaire now. They're just fucking loaded. Um, so that meant that young Jack Parsons spent most of his childhood in a massive villa. Like this was a huge house. And he was surrounded by attendants who catered to his every need. And he, so he was taught etiquette and manners and his, uh, his grandparents like doted on him, especially his grandfather. Like this kid was being brought up to be like the, the heir to their fortune. So, you know, he and his mom, you know, it was her only kid. She wasn't planning on having any more. And, you know, they're just like cajoling this little baby. So, 
you know, just to kind of exemplify the kind of wealth that he lived in, once uh, he sat on the knee of a very prominent Austrian opera singer while she gave a private concert at the Whiteside household. Whoa. So there's, you know, it's like this massive, like, I don't even know what to call a rich person's like living room. Hall, I guess, <laughs> where like all their like their close friends are gathered together, and there's this opera singer that they just they're friends with, and she's like really popular, and you know they have she has their kid like just sitting on you know her lap while she's singing to them. That's that's almost that's even greater than you know Robert Oppenheimer having Van Goghs. <laughs> all right, Mariella. So now you're a millionaire. Who are you going to invite over for a performance and sit on their lap while they perform? Oh, like as an adult? <laughs> sure. Right now. <laughs> just snap uh, of the fingers. Uh, you're rich. Oh, my God. You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, I mean, just that I want like a private performance would be like Brian Wilson. But I don't want to sit on his lap. <laughs> I feel you. I would have like all my favorite punk stars over, like No Effects and Rancid and all them. Just, like take turns on each lap. But I wouldn't sit on anybody's lap. That'd be now, weird. specifically to sit on someone's lap, that would be probably like Tom Ellis. He's an actor, but he mm. also sings. I mean, you can get anyone to sing. They can sit on my lap if they, they can, want. They can sit on my lap. So yeah, so so little Jack grew up rich as fuck. And so he was also kind of isolated because he was like the only kid in the household. And he was really sheltered by his mother and his grandparents and all the people around him. Sounds like it. Yeah. Very so he, spoiled and sheltered, but yeah. rich. So who cares? Well, I mean, when you're a little kid, you kind of need like other people your age to kind of be around. Otherwise, I don't know, it kind of warps you, I guess. There was no um, rich people around him that had kids? Probably not not the same age. Mm-hmm. Makes you that. Um, yeah, so in that sense, like, the only solace that he really found was reading, and he became a voracious reader. And he gravitated towards, you know, the Arthurian legends, Greek mythology, and then other classic tales of romance and fantasy. So, yeah, so he was really into classic literature and just anything that really had, like, a very imaginative background. Um, but the book that really grabbed his attention the most was Jules Verne from Earth to the Moon. And this is where that, you know, that cannon that's going to shoot people to the moon comes from. Um, and for the time, this, this book was actually very grounded in science. I mean, nowadays we think it's funny that, that a cannon's going to shoot at, like an object at the moon and it's going to get there. But at the time, it's just like what we knew like the physics that we knew and all the different components that would be necessary to get people to the moon was like, we just need a big gun. It's amazing how science evolves and changes. Yeah. Yeah. And Jules Verne was actually really proud of this book because it was so science fact. Anyway, so Jack really, really loved this book. And then he scoured the pages of other current pulp magazines, like Amazing Stories, Weird Tales, and Miracle Science for any science fiction tales that he could find. It was these stories that sparked Jack's fascination with space travel. He So he got a build-your-own-rocket kit, probably just ordered it, because, again, at the time, kids could, you know, order dangerous chemicals and explosives. Um, what a time to be alive, you I know? I know, right? <laughs> you and your your seven-year-old friend go build a bomb. It's fun. It's, go, kids. Come on. So what were rockets used for at the time? You know what? During this time, rocketry wasn't even like a a very 
studied science at all. I mean, like rockets have been around for thousands of years. Like, I mean, I, they came from China. The Chinese would use them in battle. And then like they were kind of used a little bit here and there throughout history, but not the way that we think of them now. Um, just because like the, the chemistry used to create them wasn't as advanced. And during like the revol the American Revolutionary War, the British actually employed rockets. That's where you know that the that uh, lyric in the Star Spangled Banner, like the rockets' red glare, that was being you know that came from that. But they weren't really like used in warfare a whole lot, just like sporadically here and there. And then later on, they just kind of fell out of use, and it was more like a like a kid's toy kind of thing. And that's where we are, you know, for Jack right now. I remember building. Uh a rocket as a kid and just going mm -hmm. to the school and shooting it off and stuff. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I remember like we went to like the, oh, I forget what it's called, but it's like where you're in like a model spaceship and then you're trying to like link, get it to land. Oh, uh, like a uh, simulator. Yeah. It was, it was like, you know, like a mini space camp kind of thing. And then we built like model rockets and shot them off. And yeah, that was pretty fun. Um, but obviously there was an adult <laughs> watching what we were doing it wasn't like here kid here's some gunpowder um but yeah so he began to build his own rockets in his backyard and obviously like his his grandpa's like super rich so here's like you know here kid you know here's all the money you need to go you know start shooting off rockets in our massive backyard and you know that was fun for jack but he may have been the quintessential rich kid but that did not make him very popular at school so, like I said, he was very coddled by his family. And since he was an only child, he was really spoiled and he was really solitary. And all the spoiling made him kind of pudgy. So he was a little chubby little kid. So at school, he had very few friends because the other kids thought that he was effeminate. And then he was also singled out because of his wealth and, you know, being pudgy and his appearance. So he also had long hair and he dressed really well. So that kind of built into that effeminate thing, which whatever. I mean, kids are mean, regardless. Kids are mean, but remember, kids, make friends with the rich kid. Yeah, dude, make friends with the rich kid. Don't don't be mean to them. Make friends with them. Unless the, the rich kid's mean. Then just use them for his money. Yeah. So, yeah, all the other boys, like, taunted and bullied him. And, you know, this caused Jack to kind of, like, turn more towards his books. So he was, you know... He was already solitary because of his family and how they treated him. And then the kids at school also pushed him away. So, like, he was just really by himself. And that's really sad. Um, yeah, so even though he was an avid reader, he did not excel at school. You would think that, that a kid who that's, like, taking in all this advanced literature would be doing phenomenal. But he didn't. He had very poor grades. And it's likely that he suffered from dyslexia. And, you know, he consistently misspelled words and he wrote in all capitals. And those are things that like point to that diagnosis. I mean, you know, retrospectively looking back, you know, we can point at this and that and say, oh, he probably had dyslexia. But at this time, dyslexia wasn't considered a serious condition. It was just like, oh, the kid's just dumb. He just can't learn. He's stupid. But Throw in the towel. Yeah, like go, go sit in the corner with a dunce cap. Like, that's how kids with dyslexia were treated back then. You know, it wasn't like, you know, they weren't going to give them like the one-on-one, -on -one, um, you know, time that they would need to actually learn. So instead, Jack, you know, he was treated as dumb. And this instilled him a great dislike for institutionalized learning. And that's going to come up later on in his life. 
So now, on one occasion, Jack was involved in a schoolyard fight because all the other kids are picking on him. So he was assaulted by a kid and was being badly been beaten. So he was like down on the ground getting the shit beat out of him. I mean, because he's he's like a younger kid, not a fighter. <laughs> well, he's probably never been in a position like that before. Yeah, you know, he doesn't have siblings to wrestle with yeah. or anything like that. Um, so yeah, he probably got picked on and beat the shit out of. Yeah. So in this specific instance, an older kid uh, who had been assigned to monitor the younger boys, he jumped in and pulled the other kid off off of Jack and, you know, with one punch broke this kid's nose and just like beat up the other kid. So um, he found bloodied and dirty on the floor a very young Jack Parsons. And that is how he met Edward Foreman. So Ed was two years older than Jack, but he also suffered from dyslexia. So so they had that in common. And he was, you know, more charismatic and more street smart than Jack. He was also poorer. So, yeah, he came from a working class family and that and they could barely make ends meet. So yet Ed took the young Jack under his wing and this became the closest friendship that Jack would ever have. So Ed sees this poor little kid, like younger kid. I mean, he's not that much younger, but still two years at that age feels like a lot. He sees this poor kid being beaten up and he's like, okay, well, he actually has money and we're kind of interested in the same things. I'm going to be friends with him and protect him. So yeah, they both had a passion for science fiction and they would spend hours reading and discussing science and uh, literature they actually began building rockets together and had a fascination with actually sending a rocket to the moon. So they both had this like passion for, for building rockets, for space travel. They had the same goals. Mm-hmm. So Ed's father was actually an, an engineer. So Ed was actually able to supply some of the technical know-how while Jack provided the funding to make the rockets happen. In the beginning, Ed was the one who, like, kind of knew how to build the rockets. And then Jack was the one providing the money to actually get all the equipment and materials needed. Um, So they adopted a motto that was Ad Astra Per Aspera, which translates to Through Rough Ways to the Stars. So they have, like, their little rocket club. It's cute. It's, It's, like, almost like to infinity and beyond. Yeah, but... But better. But through the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So aside from science fiction and rockets, Jack was growing interested in the occult. So even as a young kid, you already see him kind of touching those dark corners. So it was it was during his early teen teens that he attempted to summon the devil to his room. So this is a teenage boy. Like, I think he was like 13 or 14 at the time. And he's trying to summon fucking Satan into his room. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of us have done that with Ouija boards and stuff like that. Well, I feel like Ouija boards are a little bit different because you're in a group and you're just trying to talk to spirits. You're not actually trying to get Satan to come visit you. <laughs> come on over, Satan. We'll have a beer. Come on. Hey, do you think we can summon him right now? Sure. <laughs> Satan's with you always. He's within <laughs> your heart. He's sitting next to you. He's always looking over you, over your shoulder. <laughs> He actually helped me write this podcast. Oh, really? (laughs) What a nice guy. Yeah. So in this attempt, he actually believed he succeeded in what he called a magical fiasco. And it really scared him. 
so he thought that he actually, I mean, there's not a lot known about how he tried to summon Satan or what actually happened, but it, it would be several years before he even delved back into occult studies just because this scared him so much. I would love to know what happened. I know. I'm like, maybe he, the devil actually showed up. Or I wonder if like, you know, his grandfather like found out what he was doing. He's like, telling one he told one of the attendants okay you know go in there and pretend like you're the devil or like hide under his bed and like scare him straight um you know i mean he's a young teenager wild imagination you never know yeah i mean i think maybe just like the whole the whole notion was like oh and then you just hear something in the corner it's like nope satan bye Mm -hmm. yeah okay i can see that um but yeah so During his high school years, his mother began to worry about his faltering grades. So, I mean, even though he was really smart, he still had the dyslexia. So he's still not really doing well in school. So she decides to send him to the Brown Military Academy for boys in San Diego. So just ship him off to, you know, like toughen him up at this military school. So Jack was a shy kid and he didn't really like... He didn't do well in regimented institutions. So this is a place where they're telling him, you know, when to get up, when to go to sleep, you know, when to eat, when to do this. And he's just he's just a shy kid. Oh, yeah. And also the school was full of bullies. Oh, so nice. you think it was bad? Most of those schools at that time were. Mm-hmm. I, um, mean, I read up on a lot of uh, older punk stars who, mm-hmm. who um, got shipped out to schools like that and they become bullies. Yeah, or, like, they get bullied or, like, you know, it's just you got to beat out the uniqueness of a person, the individuality, to make them part of the military. Um, Yeah, so it was full of bullies, and Jack wasn't doing well. However, there is one thing that Jack knew how to do. Explosions. Nice. (laughs) So he wanted to get expelled, and the way that he went about it was by blowing up all the toilets in the academy. (laughs) Jack, you fucking rock. I know. (laughs) Like, uh, that I love. So he was obviously very promptly sent home because <laughs> you don't want an explosive expert, even a child, blowing up the toilets. You don't want to get an explosive expert angry. You yeah. wouldn't like an explosive <laughs> expert when he's angry. Um, so now that he was sent back to his old high school and he wasn't bullied anymore now. He had his friend Ed by his side who, you know, would protect him. Maybe he- word got out. Yeah, so he had street cred that he <laughs> nice. for being kicked out of a military academy, and he was starting to get real sexy. So he wasn't pudgy anymore. He was, you know, starting to thin out. He's his hair was, you know, getting curly, and he wore it like slicked back, which at the time was like ooh. And then he also had these bright, piercing blue eyes. And does that remind you of someone? <laughs> Curling hair, piercing blue eyes. Was awkward to begin with. Oppie. Oppie. We, I was going to say me, yeah. but <laughs> we'll go with Oppie. I do love your curling locks. Oh, they're so beautiful, aren't they? <laughs> so everything seemed to be looking up for Jack. But by 1929, does that year sound familiar to you? 1929. 1929. Something very important in American history happened in 1929. That affected the whole country for years to come. Um, the whole communist thing? Nope. Um, it does have to do with the economy. <laughs> oh, the the um, uh, depression. Yeah. So 1929, the 
economic crash dwindled his grandfather's fortune. So, no. So yeah, so he was super rich, but you know everyone was affected by the crash. Um, soon, you know, Jack was getting limousine rides to school. <laughs> so those became a thing of the past. And then the stress of losing all his wealth also caused Jack's grandfather to die in 1931. No, that's yeah. sad. So that's the only other male besides his friend Ed, like, like in a fatherly role for Jack. Uh, so now he just has his mom and his grandma and they've lost most of their wealth. Um, so Jack opted to drop out of high school, but his family sent him to, uh, the university school using the very, very last of their money. And it was at the university school where he encountered the very hyper-liberal Russell Richardson. So this was the headmaster and proprietor of the school, and he had an unorthodox way of, an unorthodox teaching methodology, which encouraged rebelliousness in his pupils. So... This type of an environment suited Jack perfectly. At uh, the school, Jack was awarded, li- uh, given he was given an award for literary excellence. So, you know, he was actually being taught how to, you know, read when, you know, while being dyslexic. Or not to read, but how to excel with that. Um, and then he also was uh, editing the school newspaper. Uh, and then it was in the school that he found his passion for chemistry. And he also found that knowledge of chemistry allowed him to make the fuel for his rocket better. So, yeah, so that was really cool. And there's actually one incident um, where he kind of butted heads with this uh, Richardson dude. uh, Because the academy, they also had another instructor who was kind of more of a military guy. And, you know, even though he was tough and strong, like, all the kids really liked him. But this guy, but the Russell guy, like wanted him out the Richardson guy wanted this this other instructor to go because um they butted heads over how to teach the kids and then all the kids banded together and then um Jack wrote this like um basically like a protest letters to Richardson telling them that you know they wanted to keep this guy because everyone loved him and it was like this whole fiasco and Jack got in trouble and it's just like one of those examples where like Jack kind of like got coerced by these other people to do something. And that kind of comes up later on because he's just, he has a really hard time saying no. So the depression peaked during this time, and the 18-year-old Jack found that he needed to take a part-time job. Um, so he was employed by the Hercules, Hercules Powder Company in Los Angeles, where he made ammonium nitrate, nitroglycerin, and ammonium di- dynamite. So he was kind of learning about explosion. Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> but it sounds like he's right at home Yeah, with so what he likes to do. Yeah. So, yeah, the work proved to be a treasure trove of explosives knowledge for the young Jack. So this was knowledge that he would, you know, take back to work, um, back to the work that he was doing with his friend Ed. So they're still building rockets at this time. So Jack would mix the rocket propellant and create the rocket design while Ed would build the rocket's outer shell. So they were kind of like tackling it together. 
So he graduated from he graduated from the university school in 1933, and he emerged a changed man. So he he went in as kind of like this you know gawkish little boy, but he he had grown to six foot one, so he was tall. Uh, he was like solidly built, so he was you know he wasn't you know pudgy anymore. He was like this like nice looking dude. So he went in as a rocket boy, but came out as a rocket man. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, he had the, his curly, curly hair and he cut it short. He had it like slicked. So he was looking real suave. He was looking real sexy now. I think he looks pretty crazy. Well, that's you, Jonah. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm looking at pictures of him and yeah, he looks like. He was handsome for his time. I believe that. Yeah. What's that movie, Ed Wood? He looks kind of like that guy. <laughs> Well, I think, like, the picture that you're looking at, he's got, like, the thin mustache. The curly hair, the, yeah, try to slick it back, but not quite. I mean, for the time, he was he was a hottie. I could see that. <laughs> Ooh la la, 1940. So, yeah, so he was also, like, starting to, to become more charismatic, and, like, he was just, you know, becoming, like, the cool, cool dude. Um, so a car dealer that he befriended described him like this, quote, I've read about people who burn with a hard gem-like flame. Jack was that kind of person to me, except it was a warm gem-like flame. There's probably all the chemicals he's working with. Yep, that's it. (laughs) So Jack ended up enrolling in the local community college in 1933 with the hopes of getting degrees in chemistry and physics so he could continue his education into rocketry. However, the loss of the Whiteside fortune meant that he could not afford his education. Like, he just... You know, there was no money for it. And like the part-time job that he had, you know, it wasn't enough to pay. So he was forced to drop out of school. Regardless, he was still determined to achieve his goal. So he was able to get a, a much better, a much better position at the main explosive explosive plants with the Hercules Powder Company in the Bay Area. So they really liked him. They saw this kid has what's it called? He's got potential. He's got a lot of potential. There's another word that I was trying to like Gumption, gumption. <laughs> so yeah, he's got a lot of potential. He's he likes just, to blow shit up. <laughs> that's our kind of kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah. So he had a lot of potential, and they saw that in him, and a lot of passion. And he was a really hard worker. Um, so in this new position, he had a monthly salary of one hundred dollars, and you know, if he saved it in, uh, enough, he could actually afford to pay tuition. So making a hundred dollars a month now seems terrible <laughs> making a hundred dollars a day now seems horrible i know and imagine tuition now compared to then yeah um so you know he was in the bay area working with this company which and that meant that he was very close to stanford and uc berkeley and both of these universities universities were the center of chemistry and physics at the time if you remember remember from our oppenheimer episode UC Berkeley in the 1930s, that's when he was there building it, building that physics department up. And, you know, you're getting, you have quantum mechanics, you have really famous, phys, you know, physicists and chemists, like, and, you know, California was like a hub at that time for those people. So he was actually given the opportunity to study at Stanford, but the, uh, the cost again was too much. So he thought, you know, he could afford it, but then it ended up being w- way too costly than he than, than what he initially thought. And now, you know, his grandfather was dead. He had his mother and his grandmother to think about. They were both struggling back in Pasadena. So he, ha- he had that to consider. 
So he ended up deciding to return to Pasadena. And, you know, there he continued to make rockets with his longtime friend, Ed. But this is a point where they hit a wall. You know, as kids, they were building like these kind of like small model rockets, but they wanted to go bigger. They wanted to, you know, be more complex. And neither of them had a formal education at this point. None of them had gone to university. Like Ed had dropped out of high school as well and like was working, you know, full time. So they were excellent amateur rocket builders, but they lacked the mathematical know-how to make any of the needed calculations because things get really complex once you're dealing with gravity and like trying to propel it higher and higher. Um, so even though, you know, Ed had kind of like a slight engineering background through his dad and then um, Jack had a bit of chemistry knowledge, they didn't have that mathematical background. So... This is when they attended a lecture by rocket engineer Eugen Sanger at Caltech. Um, There they met a mathematics and mechanical engineer PhD student named Frank Molina. And Molina quickly saw that all of them shared a passion for rocketry. They had rocketry building knowledge, so he joined forces with them. So he's coming in with this, like, you know, mathematics and engineering background. And he's, you know, pulling these two amateurs in who have actually practical rocket building knowledge, and they're partnering. So together they applied for uh, a a rocket research funding from Caltech. And with the help of Molina's advisor, uh, who was a famed uh, aerospace engineer, Theodore von Karman, they began operating under the university's Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory. These guys, like, they didn't have the knowledge, so they just kind of walked into Caltech, went to a lecture, and they started approaching different scientists, like, hey, you know, we like to build rockets. Do you like to build rockets? And eventually they were, like, told, okay, this Molina guy might be the guy that you're looking for. That's how I made all my friends in school. Do you like rockets? Do you like rockets? I like rockets. You want to blow something up? Me too. (laughs) You're cool. But yeah, but this was actually more fortuitous for them because they were actually able to get funding to do like more advanced and professional research. And, you know, they had this guy who actually knew what he was doing to provide like the theoretical background and they had the backing of Caltech. So during this time, Caltech was big. Like this was, I mean, it still is, but like this is like, you know, you have you know, like Thomas Morgan making huge advances in genetics. You have Oppenheimer also, you know, coming in and out there. You have Linus Pauling, you know, building like the the, the theoretical background for the chemical bond. So you have all these like, you know, crazy smart people in this one spot. And they're, you know, just walking in trying to be like, does anyone want to give us money? <laughs> oh, imagine walking into that room. Like <laughs> us right now, going back in time, walking into that room. <laughs> And just feeling completely dumb. <laughs> like, oh. No, it's like, I could blow shit up too. <laughs> oh, just give me some chemicals. I'll show you. <laughs> well, you can blow yourself up pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so so they ended up calling themselves the Galsit Rocket Research Group. And, you know, initially they, they weren't telling people that they were trying to build rockets to send into space. It was more like a general like research kind of thing. And that was, again, to avoid a lot of, like, that stigma that came with, like, the, oh, this is science fiction. You're crazy. You're crazy. All these crazy kids and their rockets. Yeah. So um, they called themselves the Galsit Rocket Research Group, but soon they gained the nickname the Suicide Squad. Yeah. (laughs) And this was due to the dangerous work they engaged in because they were going out to the desert and blowing shit up. (laughs) 
So Melina provided the structured scientific background and theoretical calculations, while Jack and Ed provided the technical and chemical expertise as well as a touch of creativity. So it's kind of described like Melina is, you know, he's very regimented. He's like, okay, we have to do A, B, C. We have to get, you know, this plan completely, you know, done. And these guys are like, we want to blow shit up. We want to blow shit up. They're the perfect team. Yeah. So you have your smart guy and your guinea pigs who know what they're doing. <laughs> so, um, and they were also like at this time, this is the 1930s. So everyone's into communism. Right? Oh yeah. So they treated their work in a very egalitarian manner where they each kind of like shared the workload, you know, like Jack was doing the chemistry. Ed was doing like the building and then Melina was doing the, the calculations. Um, and you know, on their trips out there, they spent a lot of time smoking weed and drinking so they were yeah you know they were doing that reefer madness stuff in the 1930s smoking that reefer yeah those commies and their weed (laughs) their marijuana cigarettes Um, if you smoke marijuana you're a commie (laughs) yeah so yeah they would go out to uh, um, this area called arroyo seco and that's where they would do a lot of their experiments and then they just kind of like hang out and bro they'd bro out you know, you know, eventually it wasn't just the three of them. They, they uh, tapped other people to come into their group. And, like, for the first four years, like, their their experiments were kind of kept a little bit under the radar um, just to not draw a lot of attention to, you know, oh, they're rockets. But eventually, like, they, they did their work well enough that they were able to impress the Caltech people. And they were officially brought in and they were allowed to use, to, like, do their experiments kind of more in-house rather than just out in the desert. (laughs) So at this point, his rocketry dreams were well underway. So he also made time for the ladies. He was blowing shit up, but he was also trying to, you know, be a 20-year-old dude. So it was in the winter of 1933 that he met a young lady named Helen Northrup at a church dance. Because apparently, you know, at the time, those were very popular. You're not going to go to a jazz club and no. be scandalous. No, the bar or anything like that. <laughs> no. They have the, the town would have their gathering, their dance mm-hmm. or whatever, whether it be in a church or a barn or somewhere. Yeah. So although she was really taken by the handsome and intelligent Jack, she didn't encourage him. Like, you know, he met, she met him you know, and his friends and like these guys were talking about rockets and space travel. She's like, oh, wow. And she's a smart girl, too. Like she was well educated. Um, So she was, you know, she liked him, but she didn't want to be like, you know, encourage him. So she started, she paid more attention to his friend Ed just to kind of like tease him and be like. "Mm." Now, okay, so this is obviously some like flirting and playing and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But the non-encouragement, was that from the stigma of rocket space and all that? No, I don't think so. I think it's just more like she just want, didn't want to, like, hype him up and, like, make him think that he was Feed his that. ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jack was persistent. So, like, she didn't give him his her phone number or address or anything. But he actually, like, tracked her down. And, like, he and Ed went to her house. And, like, you know, they waited out there until they were invited to, to play poker. Romantic or stalker? People, you yeah. tell us. At the time, it was romantic. Oh. Now it's like, oh, that guy's so creepy. Why is he outside my house? But yeah, so he 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 was persistent. And, you know, eventually they began dating. Her family was pretty happy with the match because Jack seemed like a very worldly and kind of affluent guy. 
Uh, he was put together. He dressed really well. You know, he wasn't like a, you know, scrappy little dude from L.A. Um, and then Jack's mom, Ruth, was also, you know, she also approved. She liked Helen a lot. Um, like I said, like Helen was a, a pretty smart girl, too. And she was like the eldest daughter of this family. And kind of on a really sad note, Helen's dad, well, he was actually her stepdad. From what I was reading, he molested her and her sisters and then eventually got sent to jail for, um, was it like bank fraud or like financial fraud? And then, but, and like he would keep, keep them like inside the house and wouldn't let them see any other boys or like go out or anything. And like when she's, when he approved of Jack, she was kind of like excited because this was the first time that she actually got to like go out with a guy and just kind of sad. It really is. Yeah. Scumbag. Yeah. So, yeah, so they were dating, and then Jack actually proposed to her on July of 1934, and then they married that following April. And, you know, they, they, they were happy together, sort of. Their marriage wasn't exactly perfect. Um, no marriage is. No. And this was partially because of Jack's work. Uh, so he was, you know, fully employed at the Halifax Powder Company, but he used most of his earnings to fund his work with the Galsic Group. So he was pouring a lot of, like, his money to, you know, his rocket stuff. To his research. Mm-hmm. Ain't and nothing wrong with that. No, no. I mean, not if, like, you can't make ends meet at your own home. Yeah. <laughs> you have to pay your bills. Don't pay your bills. Do it for science. <laughs> stop paying. Stop making payments on your house, your car, electric phone, or anything. Go build rockets. Yes. Don't eat. That's our official stance here yes. at Light Your Bunsen Burner. <laughs> Forgo any other necessities. Just go shoot rockets. Mm -hmm. So then to make extra money, um, he manufactured nitroglycerin in his home. So he insisted on building a home laboratory in like their porch so he could actually make a bunch of these explosive chemicals. Can you have, like, I mean, I know you have like your own little like setup in your garage, Jonah, but... <laughs> Can you like imagine like telling your wife, hey, I'm actually going to build an entire studio in, you know, our garage and there's going to be people coming in and out and I'm going to be working with like very loud equipment. I have a feeling my wife would not be surprised <laughs> considering I already have a bunch of people coming in and out with <laughs> a bunch of loud equipment. But yeah. At least it's not explosive equipment. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I do have some of that too, but not well, that's on right, not on chemistry classes. <laughs> but not on his level. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he was he was, you know, trying to make extra money, but he was also like hemorrhaging money because he's putting all his his extra earnings towards his rockets. So he would actually often ask Helen's family for loans. You know, like mm. Which, you know, you don't normally want to do. And no. then he went as far as pawning her engagement ring. No, 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 no. Yeah. Come on, Jack. Why don't you hit up the people on your team? Well, I'm sure they're also, like, putting their money into it. I would hope so. It sounds like only <laughs> but Jack. I think maybe most of them were, like, bachelors at the time. So they could, you know, mm. foreseeably afford to throw their extra money at Rockets. Um, now on one occasion, just, you know, if pawning the, the ring wasn't bad enough, she was still, you know, was like really supportive and like stayed with him and all that stuff uh, because she knows she wanted to, you know, support his rocket dreams. 
Um, and once, so on one occasion, uh, Jack was working in his home laboratory with some explosives and he was heating them like on, on this homemade like block, like a furnace. So, you know, you have to kind of be keeping an eye on them and stirring them. So at that exact same time, he received news that his uh, grandmother had been taken to the hospital. So he couldn't just like stop. Uh, so he had Helen come over and like continue stirring this explosive material while he went to go see his um his grandmother and he told her under no circumstances should she stop stirring so poor terrified wife is just sitting there stirring explosives and he's gone for hours oh man <laughs> and when he comes back she's still there <laughs> stirring away that that is has to be a very supportive and loving wife mm-hmm. <laughs> At that point, she should have took over the laboratory and, and been, been like, like, get that out of my laboratory! This is my kitchen now. <laughs> now, Jack was also gaining some public attention through his work with the Suicide Squad. Because, I mean, there's these crazy kids out in the desert blowing up rockets. So, obviously, the media is going to do write-ups on them. Uh, then, also, in 1938, he was thrust into the, into the limelight when he appeared as an expert witness in a uh, car bomb attempted murder. So this was the attempted murder of an LAPD whistleblower who had exposed a lot of corruption in the LAPD. Um, And Jack was called in as an expert explosives, uh, an expert in explosives. Um, So the LA uh, LA police captain Earl Kynette was actually convicted mostly based on Jack's testimony and his forensic work on the car bomb. Wow. So he actually like built a replica of the bomb that was used. And, like, he testified to, like, you know, how how it worked or, like, all that stuff. And it got this guy convicted. Uh, so Jack managed to establish himself as an explosive expert even without a university degree. Go Jack. Yeah. So he's, he's like, this is, like, his the top of his game. He's, like, fuck, I'm doing what I want. I'm building rockets. I got, you know, my wife who will stir explosives <laughs> for me. And people are noticing it now. Yeah. Um, so now that brings us to January of 1939. Now, um, you know, like in that area, like they meet a lot of different people. It's like a, you know, 1930s California, still kind of like a very, almost like a very proto beatnik, proto hippie scene. It's a who's who's of scientists. Mm -hmm. Especially like near LA and stuff. You got a lot of different people. So now Jack and Helen um, were introduced to the Church of Thelema by some of their friends. Uh, this is also like the, the Ordo Templis Orientis church group kind of thing. So kind of in brief, the Church of Thelema, or, you know, you can call it the OTO, was a religious movement or secret society, if you want to refer to it as that. And it was founded by Aleister Crowley in the early 1900s. And it focused on living by one's true will and self-fulfillment. Mr. Crowley. <laughs> Yes, so if we don't know a lot about Aleister Crowley, I suggest you look him up. He's a weird-looking dude. It's a fucking trip. Yeah, so he was an, like, super rich dude who, like, you know, I think he went to, like, Cambridge or Oxford or something, but he was, like, super bored there because he had, like, a genius IQ. So then he decided to spend most of his wealth just traveling to different countries and then slowly began building his, like, own like theology basically based on like magic and the occult and like ultimately created this like church of Thelema. I think like the, the motto for it is like, do what thou wilt. 
So like, do what you want, you know. Um, I am not into religion whatsoever, but I kind of like that. Do I what think, you want. Yeah, I think it's less like a, a like religion religion <laughs> as more like kind of like a spiritual movement kind of thing. New age stuff. <laughs> do like, what you want. Do what you want. Manifest your desires, I guess. Um, so the event that uh, Jack and his wife actually attended was a Gnostic mass. So this actually is kind of like a dark take on the Catholic mass. Um, so I grew up Catholic. My my parents are Catholic just because we're Mexican and that's like a big thing in our community. So, you know, that involves like sitting in pews and listening to a preacher, like, you know, talk about hellfire and brimstone and all that stuff. And then you take like the communion wafer and drink the wine and all that stuff. So the Gnostic mass is kind of like that, but kind of darkened like a lot. Um, what do you mean by darkened? Oh yeah. So during the sexually charged ceremony, so people are like groping and like there's nipples being sucked and you know, all this stuff. So during the sexually charged ceremony that was conducted in the basement of a home. So this was like the church. <laughs> Sounds like more fun than any church I've ever been to. <laughs> yeah. And, um, my grandmother was Catholic. So we went to a lot of Catholic churches as a child and yeah this sounds much more fun. Yeah, there was no nipples being sucked in any no. of those um so then um the the ceremony was conducted by magicians who emerged from coffins uh on a black and white stage they drank copious amount of wine and then they consumed uh cakes made from animal blood uh and like you know actually um one of the go um, the ceremony people like actually told Jack like you know these these cakes were really supposed to be made with menstrual blood but we didn't have that available so we just used animal blood. Hey, why not? Blood's blood. <laughs> blood's blood. If it works, it works. I think like the menstrual blood is just because it's more like a sexual thing or like it's more like a inter. I don't know. I I don't know. <laughs> I've never been to one. I might be interested. I know people who will eat raw chicken blood. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so the occult and magical concepts of the church were an allure to Jack. Another draw was Crowley's belief in sex magic. So according to Crowley, the intense feelings and sensations aroused during the sexual act could be harnessed and used to perform magical rituals. So like, you know, summoning demons or making like not wishes come true, but like affecting the world in a physical way. Really? Yeah. So that's one of like the concepts that he, he um, promoted. So it kind of may seem bizarre then an, that an up-and-coming scientist would delve into the occult, the, an occultist group. But we already know that he was interested in the occult from a very young age because he tried to summon the devil. So kind of like um, mixing this like magical uh, ideology and also sex because he's 24 and, you know, a dude, um, it really drew him in. Also, the OTO fostered a mixture of who's who in LA society. So there were actors, singers, scientists. They were that had all joined or attended a lot of these ceremonies. And so did Jack. So now by February of 1941, Jack and Helen were inducted into the Agape Lodge. So they were part of the OTO now. So sex sells and rich people will buy. Exactly. Yeah. And Crawley had that down. <laughs> and he only had to travel half the world to figure it out. God, that guy's such a trip. 
And this is where we're going to pause for today's episode, because next week we'll we'll get into all the stuff that he did with the Church of Thelema, all the sex parties, and then ultimately his downfall. Um, Come on, Jack. It's not rocket science. <laughs> and, you know, at this point, we're going to leave Jack with everything looking very good. You know, he has his rocket team, a loving wife. You know, he's joining a sex cult. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> So, um, Jonah, do you have anything that you want to add before we close out the show? I have learned so much already about this guy. Um, <laughs> when you told me who we were doing a show on, I recognized the name from mm-hmm. the right stuff. Okay. A movie I grew up watching over and over with my dad. Love the movie. Um, I have pictures of me at NASA sitting in afterburners, actual afterburners uh-huh. and stuff. Um, and I kind of knew he had something to do with all that. And mm-hmm. That's all I knew. I had no idea that it would be this interesting. Yeah, no, he's he's a really crazy character. And unfortunately, a lot of like his involvement with the, you know, the Church of Thelema and like the occult and stuff like really, you know, tarnished his legacy because he was one of the, the earliest pioneers in rocketry. And you know, kind of like set the fundamentals for like future work and like how we would actually eventually send people to the moon and all that stuff. But yeah. Hey, crazy we, isn't and, always bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we'll get into all like that other stuff that he did uh, next episode. Um, so now I really, um, I really hope that you join us next week. And I want to thank you for listening today. Uh, and if you like the show, you can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rate and review. Uh, we obviously really appreciate that. Um, if you want to be even more amazing, like sex cult amazing, you can go and donate to the show by going to anchor.fm slash Pod. And if you click that support podcast button, you'll give us money. Yay! So also, if there's anything that you want to share about uh you know maybe your experiences with sex cults or you know magic or rockets or rockets um you can also suggest future episodes you do this by um emailing us uh at our email bunsenburnerpod at gmail.com uh you can also find us on the internet at our website bunsenburnerpod.com and there you can see blurbs about the show. You can learn about Jonah and I. You can also contact us there as well. You can find me at Gatos and Tiaras on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can search my name on Facebook and you'll find me there. Uh, Jonah, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you? You can find me at BakerBase at Yahoo.com. That's B-A-K-R-B-A-S-S at Yahoo.com. Or just type in my name, Jonah Baker, on Facebook and I'll say hi. Uh, and as always, I want to thank John Oddway for letting us use his song Bunsen Burner as the theme of our show. Go listen to his music. It's great. I'm pretty sure he's not summoning Satan in his room. Uh, but he might be into some kinky stuff. You never know. <laughs> don't tell him we said that. Please. And also, please don't try to summon the devil into your room because we want to see you next week as we conclude the sordid saga of Jack Parsons. But if you start a sex cult, I might join. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> All right, bye. Bye. Let me be your bunsen burner.